Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, the Crypto Hipster, Jamil Hassan, where I bring you founders, entrepreneurs, executives, thought leaders, artists, musicians, you name it, all over the world in crypto and blockchain. And today, actually today and the summer season, I am bringing to you a new compilation episode. Last year, from seasons one, two, and three, I brought you the Crypto Hipsters Chronicles. And now, from season four and five, without further ado, I bring you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And what that is, and what it was last year, and what it is this year, it's a compilation. It's a compilation of three or four podcasts together as like a montage. And on a certain topic or area of interest in crypto and blockchain, pulling from my podcasts. And now, as we're heading to the summer of 2023, I bring to you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And there's going to be 22 or 23 or 24 around their episodes. And I look forward to you looking forward to it. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for, for enjoying my podcasts. And this is going to be a summer treat for everybody. So please sit back, enjoy, and uh, yeah, let me know your thoughts. This is episode six of the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals with your host, Jamil Hassan. Regulatory attacks on privacy and why government needs CBDCs. This compilation of podcast episodes is with three guests. First, Martino Lucas Pyers, who is the head of public and regulatory affairs at Block Reg Advisors in Lisbon, Portugal. Second is Vinicius Peraza Diaz, the head of growth marketing at of Latin America at L Bank in Brazil. And third is Christopher Goves, who is the co-founder of Anoma. Enjoy. It's interesting you mentioned ICO because I was an ICO advisor back in 2017 and somebody told me, said to me, uh, the US market is the only market that matters. And that's no longer true, mm -hmm. I believe. And I believe that other markets like the EU are going to be very impactful. So what do you think would be the long-term effects of MICA, including the challenges that lie ahead? And how does the EU navigate these challenges collectively? Because like you said, there's a disparity between the different countries. Um, well, MICA took some time to be approved. Right. This was not an easy process. And I remember when the first proposal by, of MICA was, uh, was put forward on the table, I think we were around 2019, 2020, um, that everyone was saying, oh, but wait a minute, you guys are regulating ICOs. And ICOs was a 2017 thing. Now we have, I don't know, NFTs. Now DeFi is starting to take place. And for example, NFTs are excluded from MICA. Uh, uh, 
DeFi uh, is also not, it, it, well, a lot of people say that DeFi is not covered by MICA. Others say that there might be some areas where DeFi is going to be impacted by MICA. But the fact is that when MICA was being approved last week, there were already discussions in Brussels about the MICA 2. So a new set of regulatory uh, measures that are going to cover specifically DeFi or decentralized finance and uh, other developments. Also, there's a lot of, let's say, secondary legislation, let's call it like that. For example, rules on the U.S. now uh, reforming rules on data management for business purposes. Uh, and uh, there are rules there that people say are going to impact the smart contracts on blockchains and how you develop smart contracts for privacy reasons. You have, and uh, also uh, the AI regulation that is coming forward, you have rules on the digital operational resilience of financial institutions. So, and you also have uh, changes to EU financial rules to try to accommodate uh, security tokens or, or tokenized securities, whatever they, they're gonna have to call them in the end. So um, Mike, I think is the first step in the conversation. I don't think it's an ideal first step because uh, legislators move slowly and the market doesn't wait for regulators. And so it's, it's ever evolving. Um, and so um, this was kind of a first step in, in trying to regulate the market, but there's still a lot to be done and still a lot of discussions to happen. And we don't know also how the market is going to play out. So now we're, we're seeing we're just coming off the Ethereum becoming a proof of stake uh, protocol. Uh, we're coming off. We don't know what are going to be the major DeFi players in uh, a year or two years. Uh, we're still there. People are expecting through this kind of inflationary crisis uh, it, to see how Bitcoin's price and adoption is going to grow or not. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty also in the market and how this, we don't see how AI still is going to be uh, combined with blockchain or not, what are the major applications they are going to bring to the table. So we're still in this kind of cloud or in the metaverse. Remember the metaverse, everyone's talking about the metaverse. How is the metaverse going to come? So if, if you are a small state that can regulate, uh, they want to regulate things, you have an advantage because you're small, so you can regulate things pretty quickly. If you're a big political uh, I'm going to call it polity in the way, but the, the EU is not a state, but to call it uh, just an international organization, I don't think is also correct. Um, you take more time to do this because it's so many different interests, right? It's a bit like when you look at Congress and the Senate and how the crypto bills and the discussions around crypto are evolving, right? Uh, they've listened to everyone since uh, Facebook wanted to do Libra. Now they're also listening to Gensler. They like it, and and but when you see the action that they want to do or not, it's not clear. It's not clear how the US is moving. So, uh, so I think Meek is a, maybe resuming is a, an, an interesting first step uh, and a necessary first step. But it's that a first step. A lot of things still are going to have to be fine tuned, and I think we have to wait for the next one to two years to understand uh, how that's going to play. A funny thing, and with this, just finishing the answer is that Mika was approved last week, but it's only coming into force fully in one year and a half. So when Mika comes into force, really member states, member states are all already trying to prepare themselves and businesses in Europe are already preparing themselves for this. But in two years time, I don't know how the market is gonna be. And if Mika is gonna have any advantage, 
or if everyone is going to be just launching DAOs and decentralized and DeFi's and going outside of the scope of Mika. So let's wait and see how it's, how it's going to play. Interesting times. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the, actually, a few follow ups. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned some of the subsectors, right? The Mika covers or doesn't cover. Mm-hmm. And what do you think are some of the areas they need to look at, like in some of these subsectors, like DeFi, like the metaverse, NFT? and gaming, which are the big four right now, mm-hmm. um, and the shifting regulatory waters and the issues, what do you see as potentially coming down the pike they got to look at or the challenges they're going to have looking at it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this really interesting question. Uh, but I'm going to have to be spe- speculative, but my, my hunch and from what I see in Brussels and uh, in other member states, I think the biggest the uh, thing they're going to try to deal with is DeFi, decentralized finance. So the provision of financial services uh, or, or services that can be equivalent to financial activity um, through the issuance of tokens, uh, liquidity, stakings, uh, money makers, AMMs, etc. Through uh, computer programs, so through protocols and decentralized protocols, I think that is the, the way they're going to look. Because um, one thing is, Mika is more, if we have to be honest, is more about let's say exchanges or uh, or companies issuing tokens per se. But it's not about really the the decentral decentralization and about centralized protocols and about how these protocols connect with one another, about algorithmic stable coins, for example. Uh, it's uh, so it doesn't enter into that world also because of the challenges in entering the world like uh, who are you going to regulate like a lot of regulation is about um, liability of the market actors like uh, who is going to be liable uh, the, and also the, the, the model in which certain protocols work I think about Ethereum for example where you have let's say this decentralized governance or this distributed governance where you have many different players, all of them financing developers all over the world to try to participate. So who is going to be liable? Is the whole system, is everyone that holds Ethereum and therefore contributes to the governance of the protocol through its proof of stake? Um, And and there are challenges here. And I think the main challenge uh, for European regulators is going to be how to handle the intersection between crypto and trade five, so traditional finance. You mentioned a number earlier. You said 1.6 trillion, and I'm going to challenge that. I don't believe that. I believe it's four. You know, I believe the Brazilian GDP is four trillion, not 1.6 trillion, uh, or or like that ratio. Like it's two, it's two times that, or two and a half times that. And one of the things that I think that makes sense in Brazil, where it doesn't make sense in the U.S., where I am, is uh, central bank digital currencies. Right. Because you have such a huge black market. Right. Um, What role do you think central banks and central bank digital currencies will have in the future of crypto security protection for especially for Brazilians? Yeah, (laughs) that's uh, I love this question, but uh, I really I wonder if I can answer. Right. Uh, Because it's 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 very complex. Uh, I love the, the, the idea of I'm studying a lot. I'm not a legal person. I'm not a compliance person, so I'm just like curious. I'm um, I'm following all the steps of the regulation here in the country. 
um, today what I can uh, what I can talk about that is um, most likely most likely who will lead the crypto regulation here in Brazil will be the central bank most likely because we don't know yet uh, that will be decided early next year so uh, we have like until tomorrow to the president uh, sign the bill uh, yeah the, the the deadline is tomorrow uh, so central bank probably will lead because they are super involved at the, at, with the, the subject um, the chamber of the deputies um, they defend the the idea that with the current law, with the current bill, users would be better protected, like from 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 the company that acts in bad faith, like from pyramids and fraudulent and and so on. Um, and probably they they, they would ensure ensure uh, this by imposing like rules and sanctions for those who not uh, to comply, like based. Ba Basically, uh, that that's it. I think that it, in theory makes sense. Like in theory, when 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 I said that, like super makes sense. Um, but I think there's a several points to discuss. After all, I think decentralization uh, after that will be not not so decentralized uh, because once that we are uh, involving like uh, bureaucracies, numbers of bureaucracies. Uh, in the process, in the regulatory process, and like the people of the government, they are trying to understand. They are not specialists, so they not fully understand the concept of the of this uh, new economic proposal, right? Um, so my my like my restriction or my like my fear here is um, these sanctions and this rule can block. Devolution. Uh, so, of course, there's good and, and bad things, but um, it's complex. And we are seeing in the, the discussions, especially in the Chamber of Deputies, that that is very complex. Uh, there's a lot of points that uh, that uh, was being removed for, for the original test uh, because because this was too generic. So, yeah, I think that. Uh, the next year will be will be key for that for that uh, discussion. <clears throat> All right. So something that was talked about recently in the Brazilian laws that you, that you mentioned um, was a concept that I've been thinking about all week because I, I wrote I read an article last week, and it's this concept of asset segregation. And then my, from my perspective, like I had money on Celsius that I lost, but then there's been like an infighting of between people who are Bitcoin or Ethereum maximalists and cryptos that I have, which are different than them, you know, uh, and everybody's at odds because, you know, they have different different perspectives and different concepts and different goals and different everything, right? So how could clear asset segregation, you know, by centralized finance exchanges serve, you know, uh brazil or any other country going forward and why is it important in DeFi? yeah uh yeah this is segregation like and uh, it was that there's the the example that i that i gave that was removed uh I, I i can explain a little bit more about this this particular 
um, view uh, project. But um, like for the first question, uh, I, I believe in transparency, right? I think there is uh, no one can change something of yours without explicit, uh, explicit um, accept, acceptance beforehand. Like uh, there, there's the basic. Uh, I think that is from the moment, uh, uh, from the moment the user understands the risks, like the scenario, and everything involved involved in a specific action or or, or a product, um, the company has the right to use the, the available assets. Like, uh, of course, under a clear policy, uh, just constantly updating your like uh, 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 and educating the the user. That's that's why the education process of crypto is very important because otherwise we are not uh, uh, we, we we even know about what is asset segregation right um so for me like like offering liquidity uh using third-party assets to to ensure profitability or or, or even operation operational viability for me it, it's crazy it's madness because uh um like just do that is crazy but doing that without the consent of the user uh it's it's totally crazy it's, it's a crime right it's a violation so sticking with the privacy you know privacy to me it seems like the regulators are attacking privacy right why is it why is privacy more important now than it has ever been before you know and why are they attacking it or or so it seems they are Right. Uh, well, I, I am not a regulator, so I don't know all of their intentions or motives. Um, but I suspect that a lot of what's going on is simply that there's a lot of confusion um, in how these systems work and who is deploying them. This is frankly made worse by entities like Celsius, BlockFi, and FTX, which spend a lot of time schmoozing with regulators and having dinners and ingratiating themselves in the Washington DC scene and talking, you know, talking up a storm about how they're the new decentralized financial sector or whatever, um, and then don't actually do that. Uh, and I think this makes the, yeah, it makes the situation much worse, uh, especially when they're, you know, hiring influencers to market with television ads. Um, the specific question of privacy, I think, is um, uh, probably there are there are a great mix of intentions and motives. I mean, the uh, governments tend to um, like uh, additional amounts of control over systems, uh, sometimes nominally for the purpose of protection, sometimes perhaps just because they want to, you know, uh, advantage some specific party. There are many uh, companies which benefit from privileged relationships with government. They probably don't want competition like the banking sector, uh, which is gigantic, unnecessarily benefits from close relationships with government. They probably don't want competition. Uh, so there may be influences in that direction. Uh, certainly, for example, the Canadian and Brazilian governments have taken specific actions to suppress dissent within their countries that are in part enabled by their control over the financial system. Once given, that control is difficult to give up. 
uh, US government tried to ban cryptography unsuccessfully in the 1990s before there were any cryptocurrencies just in the days of PGP. Uh, I think because they realized that you know, it was finally some communications which they might not be able to intercept and spy on. And that seemed scary. Uh, this is a, not a new battle. Uh, I think it's a pretty continuous one. But the stakes are higher now than they have been before uh, because the ability, you know, let's, let's go back to the year 1850. So in 1850, there were not, there was, there was a little bit of like cryptography, but there wasn't, there were no computer systems, there were no fancy cryptographic financial systems, nothing like this. However, the cost of surveillance was pretty high. In order to surveil, you know, people use cash. Cash is very private. And in order to surveil an individual's transactions, the government had to like hire somebody and send that person to their house or talk to people. You know, the cost of surveilling individuals was was not trivial. But now we have all this dragnet surveillance. Data is just captured, it's gathered up by uh, servers, by telecommunications providers, by kind of a small number of companies which have a strong monopoly over uh, user data and the government can easily sort of fetch data from. Uh, and that makes the cost of surveillance very, very low. So privacy, private technology doesn't, you know, the government still has like police uh, uh, as long as we live in that equilibrium at least. So it doesn't prevent individual surveillance or doesn't prevent uh, the kind of techniques to, um, you know, it doesn't prevent the kind of power balance that previously existed. Um, but what it does prevent is the sort of dragnet surveillance of everything uh, where uh, companies, large companies and the government can get whatever data they want without having to go through any kind of civil process and without having to pay any kind of cost for individual investigations. So I think there will be a sort of tussle over this because we have, as a, as a society, been a little bit, you know, it, it was just not clear what the impact of these large-scale digital systems would be. And early on, many of the operators of the systems were more ideologically driven and would have hesitated to give away data for free to the government or sell it to people. And over time, most of these systems have just become captured by kind of uh, autonomous Wall Street profit maximization functions, and they don't care about any sort of individual um, protections anymore. They're just selling their data to the highest bidder. Uh, and unfortunately, we've become locked into this equilibrium, like into you know, Google accounts, Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts, and it's hard to shift out of it. It will require a bunch of collective action and alternative systems design and building and negotiation with uh, the sort of people in the current structures of power. But I, I don't think it will, uh, you know, you cannot regulate out uh, uh, cryptography or information technology. It's like trying to regulate the laws of physics. It's out of out of the bounds of human systems. So eventually privacy will win out. It's just a question of uh, trying to craft a kind of peaceful transition in my mind.